Okay, good morning. Um, I was sharing with Bo Spires yesterday that when it comes to technicalities of Greek syntax and grammar, etc., it can sound a little uh, complicated, and it is complicated. But I wanted to share with you before I read my manuscript. Uh, by the way, my edition in the booklet is just bullet points. I have a manuscript here that I'll be reading actually to you today. But I was sharing with Bo that in the medical world you have those who are working in the laboratories, um, developing medications, uh, experimentations, etc. Then you have physicians that take the results of that research and then you have the patient who is the recipient of that research and doesn't understand the, techni the tech, uh, technical details of it, but benefits from it all. And in many ways, that's what takes place in biblical teaching, is that there are the technicians, uh, that's who we went to study under in seminary and so forth, and took years of uh, language study, um, to study under those technicians. And then to, as pastors, kind of serving like a, a physician, we seek to prescribe what somebody else did for us and helped us understand and to bring it down more into a practical level and then for people to benefit from that teaching eventually. So as we do some of these more detailed things, which I'm going to as well uh, to a degree, uh, please keep in mind that there's a purpose in it. There's a benefit of it to the body of Christ. My topic is entitled, The Salvation of the Woman, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, but we'll look at verses 13 and 14 in context. In summary, concerning translations, most of the translations interpret the, or translate, I should say, the last verse, verse 15, nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing, uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The exceptions to that are the New International Version and the New American Standard Version that translates it, but women will be saved. The other versions, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, and the King James Version all translate it that she shall be saved as a singular versus women as a plural. That said, shall be saved is a singular verb. It's future, it's indicative, and it is a singular verb. As we look at this passage of chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, I'd like to also address the broad context. And as I was listening to Mark, and we did not confer with one another in our study preparations and manuscripts, there's a little bit of overlap, but I think it'll be beneficial. In 1 Timothy 3.15, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In this passage, it is understood to be a thematic statement, and if it is, it's stating the purpose of the epistle. Then the Bible, must be take, must, then the Bible student must take this statement into consideration in seeking the interpretation of each individual part of the epistle. In his commentary on the pastoral epistles, J.N.D. Kelly, who's a principal of, at St. Edmund Hall in Oxford, 
entitled his comments on the whole of this chapter as, quote, ordering of public worship, end quote. He writes this section dealing with the importance of public worship and the conduct appropriate at it, and the following chapter with its direction for the ministry form the earliest manual of church order that we possess. The necessity of clear regulations for congregational gatherings was speedily realized in the primitive church. Kelly is not the only commentator who subtitles this section of the epistle under the subject of conduct within the church meeting. Paul outlines directives regarding prayers by the men, as Marcus communicated, modest attire by the women, the man's teaching role, and to understand these directives as referring to matters outside of the assembly meeting of the church would be contradictory to other New Testament passages. Women are given guidelines for public prayer. They're given guidelines for exercising the gift of prophecy in a public setting. And that's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. And certainly, Paul would not be prohibiting women from dressing in, quote, costly clothing, end quote, or giving instructions on hairstyle and jewelry to be applied in all contexts of life. The assembly meeting itself is clearly in view in 1 Timothy 2. Paul states a similar distinction of the assembly meeting from other contexts where Christians gather and live in, in 1 Corinthians 11. It must be said that Paul's usage of the word andros, a singular and congruent with the Adam and Eve account in verses 13 and 14, is the same root word of chapter 2, verse 8, that men should lift up holy hands in prayer. This term can be translated as husband, if warranted by the context. However, the proximity of 2.8 and 2.12 using the same root word, the transition should be consistent, and the translation, I should say. However, it is very unlikely Paul is calling out only husbands to participate by lifting up holy hands in prayer. That would be very much of a stretch. The flow of the passage is addressing corporate worship of the church, and that lends to the translation of man and man in these instances. Now the interpretation of verses 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Paul is certainly not stating that men are immune from deception. He is stating, however, that due to Eve's being deceived in the garden, a resulting consequence transpired. The term gaganon, which is come to be, or as the New King James translates it, fell into transgression, which is in the perfect tense, and a tense that states a specific action with ongoing results. This is the same type of tense that was used when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. It's a particular type of tense that an action has ongoing results or has even permanent results in some cases. In this particular case, it says her transgression caused them to, or her deception caused a falling into or coming to be into transgression. Now that's important, which we'll talk about in a moment. 
Adam's partaking of the fruit was willful. In fact, God's confrontation of Adam did not address the subject of deception. He said to Adam, because you heeded the voice of your wife. On the other hand, Eve's partaking of the fruit was due to being deceived. It is clear throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that all believers, both men and women, are susceptible to the deceptions of false teaching. Even within the epistle at hand, Paul is giving protective instructions regarding the misuse of the law and the error of restrictions some were teaching as listed in 1 Timothy 4, not to marry, not to eat certain foods, etc. Some believe the admonitions of our passage of chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, are Paul's response to the cultish beliefs concerning Artemis. Others believe the false teaching referenced the epistle pertaining to Gnostic myths. Cross-references within other pastoral epistles of Titus particularly, mention is made of Jewish myths. The more immediate context within 1 Timothy references those who are using the law unlawfully. This points to a Jewish source and misuse of the Mosaic law as components of the false doctrine that Paul is confronting in 1 Timothy. Internal evidence within the biblical text must take precedent over external or extra-biblical evidence. If extra-biblical evidence is necessary, I want to say that again, if anything outside the Bible is necessary for an accurate interpretation of any scripture, that interpretation should be questioned. Internal evidence always takes precedence. St. Hodges writes, professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary for 26 years, it is then more likely that the errors combated are essentially Jewish and involve this type of fanciful, allegorical speculations on the law which can be found in rabbinic literature such as the Jewish book of Jubilees. Whatever be the case, the cause for the restrictions on women, prohibiting them from teaching in the assembly meeting, is the result of Eve's deception in the Garden of Eden. An imputation actually took place, and the consequences of that imputation, similar to what mankind has experienced in the light of Adam's sin. I think everybody here believes in the imputation of Adam's sin. We are all sinners in Adam. We also, on the positive side, believe in the imputation of righteousness through Jesus Christ. We have been imputed righteousness. But there's more than just those two imputations. There's the imputation of role. This might be one of the more challenging quotations, but I've decided to share it with you and ask you for at least consideration. The gaganon, that's the verb that says in the perfect tense, fell into transgression, provides the true clue to the interpretation. A perfect tense, it applies not simply to Eve in the past, but to woman in the generic sense and with a present relevance. The apostle views the woman as standing under the guilt incurred for her by the first woman. 
She is now in a state of transgression which causes her to lose the privilege she might have had in the public instruction of God's word in the church. Her silence in the church is mute testimony to the reality of the failure of her kind in Eve in the garden. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden has led to the passivity of the male and the desire of the woman to experience the frustration that results from the tension and conflict as John Morrison outlined. This undoubtedly spills over into the church and necessitated apostolic response. In a study of the theology of a temple, it can be argued that the Garden of Eden was itself the first temple where God met man. According to 1 Corinthians 3, the corporate church under the current dispensation is the temple of the Holy Spirit where God and man meet. The gathering of believers and the assembly meeting is that special occasion reflecting restored fellowship and harmony with God where God and man meet. And it's interesting that Adam and Eve and their created order and experience in the garden are referenced in Paul's writings as it relates to the roles of men and women in the church. This is a study that would take much more time for another time. Concerning chapter 2, verse 15, about what does it mean for a woman to be saved through the bearing of children, the New Testament translates this particular word as a third-person singular, she shall be saved through the bearing of children. Consistent in number, the third person plural, she shall be saved, modifies the word minosin, which is translated if they continue. Or, yeah, if they continue. That subject has to, excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I, I confused that over. The third person plural of minosin has to modify what is plural. And that subject would be the participle, the Greek word is technagonias, which is translated as childbearing. In other words, to make it simple, when Paul says, she shall be saved through the bearing of children, she, of course, is singular. The bearing of children, children is plural, then if they continue, the question is, who is the they? The woman or the children? It has to be the children because the word is also plural. It plural modifies plural. So in other words, Paul is saying, she shall be saved through the bearing of children if those children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In that particular issue, the question arises, save from what? Eternal hell? The obvious answer is a resounding no. Likewise, Paul is also not teaching that bearing of children is the divine call and assignment for all women, and that includes even marriage. That too would be contrary to other clear portions of Scripture. It must always be understood by Bible students that the verb to save and the noun salvation do not demand a soteriological interpretation of deliverance from eternal punishment in its usage. Simply stated, these terms simply mean to rescue or to deliver or to preserve. 
the same way we use the terms in English. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, that when it says this, and I quote, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In that context, he was referring to confronting false doctrine. Save them from the impact, deliver them from the impact of that which is false. But back to chapter two, what will the woman be saved from? If she is restricted from teaching in the assembly meeting or exercising authority in the assembly meeting, then what shall we shall be saved from if her children continue in those godly characteristics? The context points to the children benefiting from the discipling initiatives of their mother. Her impact and ministry and effectiveness is not without redemption from Eve's transgression and deception. In other words, Paul is saying Eve's deception will not prevent her from an eternal impact by investing into the lives of her children if her children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Timothy himself serves as an example of this truth. Paul writes in his second epistle, quote, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you as well. Later on in 2 Timothy, he says, but you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. Real must, remember, must be remembered that God has used women through the centuries to not only teach God's truth, but to deliver God's people, both physical and spiritual, and from spiritual annihilation. The midwives in Exodus 1 <clears throat> heroically saved the Israelites from being eradicated from the earth by refusing to obey the king of Egypt. Hannah bypassed both her husband and the high priest Eli, going directly to God that resulted in the birth of Samuel. And due to his birth, hundreds of years of spiritual dearth, now the voice of God was being spoken because of the woman Hannah and her faith in what she did in bringing Samuel to be that voice of God. Dr. Bruce Walkey writes, Hannah is the heroine of the scene of birth of Samuel. Hannah's prayer transforms a nation. Rather, she turns to a prayer. She reorganizes her life by vowing to give Samuel back to the I am all the days of his life. Regarding the midwives of Exodus, Walkie writes, the God-fearing midwives, insignificant women by the world's standards, foil the plan of the Pharaoh who embodied the beings and powers of Egypt's gods, making him a quasi or semi-divine being. The scene peaks in the third foiled plan, God frustrates Pharaoh's general edict to all Egyptians to drown every Israelite baby by having his own daughter ironically save the boy who will defeat Egypt 
And once again, women, this time by their feminine intuition, defeat the Pharaoh, God is not mocked. In poetic justice, God kills all of Egypt's firstborn at the first Passover and drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In a delicious irony, women who fear God defeat the mighty Pharaoh. This is very much in line with what Paul says, and the woman will be saved through the childbearing if those children continue in faith, love, holiness. The great eternal impact of godly women investing in children and having worldwide impact through it. Only the judgment seat of Christ will we become fully aware of the eternal contribution that mothers have had who have trained and discipled their children. To undermine the importance of this role is evidence of cultural influence or the unawareness of the high value that God places on motherhood. This truth is so woven in the book of Proverbs. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. I conclude with saying these words. Interpretation that has stood the test of time, including centuries, is not the basis for interpretation to be correct. I have heard from some that new views are more progressive. The implication was that they were advanced. I would caution those thoughts. Even though an interpretation who has stood the test of time is not the basis for adoption of it, exegesis is always the basis when examining the biblical text. However, in balance, it must also be realized that within the newly formed or published interpretations arises that are counter to historical understandings, there is reason for pause an extraordinary and detailed examination. And I hope that this seminar has provided that for you.